reading comes from Isaiah chapter 30. We'll start with 1 through 5 and hop over to 15 to 22. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, and set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are his own, and his envoys reach kings, everyone comes to shame through people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest he shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall, your, shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuer shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right and when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. Stress. In one word, I have probably described the majority of lives in this room. And certainly as the holidays approach, stress ratchets up. Isn't it amazing the degree of fatigue and weariness that stress can produce? There's a cafe that figured this out in Seoul, South Korea. It's called Green Lab. And they came up with what's a great creative solution. They get people to pay to do nothing. So people pay to come into this cafe. When they come in, uh, you're not allowed to talk. You have to turn your phone off. And there are large windows uh, that you look out of into this beautiful green forest. And there are diffusers that release this pleasing aroma as you sit there. One of the customers in their early 30s said this, I've been so tired and I don't even have time to space out. After work, I go home and I have to do housework. And then I barely have 30 minutes to an hour before I need to sleep. I spend that time on my phone. So in a space like this, I can actually focus on taking a break. Now, that probably describes much of our daily routines. We get this place of intense weariness and fatigue. Downtime 
vacation time, sit on the couch, stare at the wall time. All that is part of certainly rhythms of life. But none of that, none of that actually solves the problem of a weary soul. What brings rest to a weary soul? In Isaiah chapter 30, God's people are approaching burnout. They're approaching disaster. Because as we see, this impending invasion of the Assyrians is pressing in. And they have resorted in their weariness, in their stress, in their the threat is coming, they've resorted to frantic activity. Frantic activity to try to bring rest. And it's in this chapter that God calls them to the way of rest. It's not frantic activity, something very different. And it answers the question, what brings rest to a weary soul? Now the answer is short. It's one word. It's repentance. But that makes the question, what about repentance brings rest to the soul? To explore this, we're going to look at the need for repentance. The act of it and then the power for it. We'll start with the need for repentance. Why do we need to repent? In other words, what direction are our lives heading in that we need to turn from? It's like when you're traveling and you're going somewhere and you come to that realization that you're going down the wrong road and you've got to turn around. That's what repentance is. Is it turning around when you're heading in the wrong direction? The question is, what are the wrong directions that we head in that call for repentance? Well, Isaiah here is going to point out two wrong directions, and I would say they are the two kind of big picture wrong directions that our lives begin to, to move towards that call for repentance. The first one is in verses 1 to 2. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine. Who make an alliance, but not my spirit. That they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. As we've seen, Assyria was about to invade. And about to take God's people into exile. They saw this coming. And so they sent an envoy down to Egypt to strike an alliance with Egypt to protect them. So they made an alliance with Egypt of all places. They spent 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But they made an alliance with Egypt to protect themselves from Assyria. They made this alliance, and yet what we see here in these first two verses, we see three phrases, they're, they're worded differently, but three phrases that really point out what was the sin that God's people had committed? Look at these three phrases again. Who carry out a plan but not mine. Who make an alliance but not of my spirit. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. Three different phrases 
one message. God was calling his people out for acting independently. They were acting independently. Oswald Chambers says, whenever God touches sin, it is independence that is touched. And that awakens resentment in the human heart. Independence must be blasted clean out. There must be no such thing. Only freedom, which is very different. Freedom is the ability not to insist on my rights, but to see that God is His. So that the first wrong direction they were headed in was this acting independence, self-dependence. But then we see the second wrong direction in verses 9 to 10. For there are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instructions of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. So, two problems here. Unwilling to listen to the Lord, that's one. But the second is, they found these prophets and said, Say to us smooth things. Let me try to pull these together into one phrase that captures Make us feel good, don't give us the truth. But that, that's at the heart of what God is calling out for you. It's make us feel good, but don't give us the truth. We want preaching, we want teaching, but we want it to match our preconceptions. Don't want all our feathers. Just give us, give us what we, what we want to hear. Speak to us smooth things. Well-known novelist Flannery O'Connor said, "The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Right? The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it." We avoid truth. And we believe that we can avoid truth, it will make us feel good. And I will tell you that avoiding truth on the surface seems to promise you to feel good, but it brings just the opposite. You will never grow as a person. You'll never grow as a leader. You'll never grow as a parent. You'll never grow as a spouse. If you're unwilling to hear truth, change and growth happen when you make your heart embrace the truth that is most offensive to you. That's when change and growth happen. Happens when you make your heart embrace that truth that is most offensive and probably most scary to you. And yet, you and I know how hard it is to invite honest feedback. How hard it is to invite honest feedback. Why? Because we don't want to be a failure and we don't want to appear incompetent. And so we'll avoid that at all costs. And that means I don't want to hear honest feedback. I just want to hear smooth things. And yet that's the recipe of no growth at all. Psalm 112 7 says this He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in 
the Lord. The converse of that is true. That when we're not trusting in the Lord, when we're acting independently, we are scared to death of bad news. Bad news is so scary when you're acting independently. That's what brings these two wrong directions together. When you're acting independently, you will avoid truth. That is the natural outcome, that when you're acting independently, you will avoid truth. You will never ask for honest feedback when you're acting independently. Those two go hand in hand. I love the, uh, the, the fictional short story of the emperor's new clothes. These two swindlers arrive to the town of an emperor who spends lavishly on clothes. He loves clothes. So these two swindlers offer to supply this emperor with magnificent clothes that are invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. And so the swindlers get out of the looms and start making these clothes, and the emperor's watching, and he goes, there, there's no cloth on that room. He didn't see anything. But of course, he didn't want to appear stupid or incompetent, so he kept going along with it. They, they finished the clothes, and they are about to dress the emperor to parade him through the town in his new clothes. And so they put these new clothes on him, he starts parading through the town, and all the townspeople are very uncomfortable because... They see that the emperor is not wearing any clothes. But none of them say anything because no one wants to appear stupid or incompetent. And so finally, this little child blurts out, He's not wearing any clothes! And the emperor gets startled, but then he keeps walking as proudly as that. Avoiding truth only ends ultimately in shame and humiliation. And yet, when you're acting independently, the avoidance of truth and the avoidance of honest feedback seems to be the way to the place of feeling good about yourself. And yet, the opposite is true. It only ends in shame and humiliation. If you were to honestly assess yourself right now in those two wrong directions, acting independently, and avoiding truth. If you did some honest assessment, where do you fall in those two categories? How are you acting independently? And how are you avoiding truth? What brings rest to a weary soul? It starts there. The need for repentance. Understanding why you need to repent. But second, the act of repentance. Repentance is counterintuitive. It goes against the very grain of our natural self. It is not something that naturally flows from us. Verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. That word returning means repentance, and that is the, the active pathway back to the Lord. That word quiet means the absence of frenzy or frantic activity. And what I want you to see as we move through this is repentance is very counterintuitive. 
what is very natural for us is to move into frantic, frenzied activity. The theme throughout the Bible, one of the common themes throughout the Bible, is the counterintuitive ways of God. So consider with Israel, when God's people are coming out of the wilderness, they've been there for 40 years, they cross over the Jordan, they're on the verge of the promised land. They're sitting outside Jericho, and God gives them very counterintuitive battle plans. He says, for six days I want you to march around Jericho, and on the seventh day I want you to blow trumpets and to shout. Now, those are not plans that God's people would have come up with. They're absolutely counterintuitive. Or take the, uh, the battle of Gideon. Gideon has 32,000 soldiers, and God says that's too many. So he whittles them down to 300. And then he gives them these very counterintuitive battle plans. Blow trumpets and smash jars. Again, that's not a plan that God's people would have come up with. The counterintuitive ways of God culminate in the cross. A bloody, beaten man hanging on a cross. That doesn't shout victory. And then the Apostle Paul picks up this counterintuitiveness and says God's power is made perfect in weakness. How unnatural is it for you to embrace weakness? It's completely unnatural. In Isaiah 30, God's people here are in the midst of a military situation with a military threat from a stronger nation that's coming in to invade. And God's plans for them was not more weapons or stronger alliances with other nations. His plan was Repent and trust, which will produce quietness. No frenzy activity. It's absolutely unnatural. God didn't call them to strategic alliances, He called them to reliance. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said there are two sins of man that are bred in the bone. And that continually come out in the flesh. One is self-dependence, and the other is self-exaltation. It is very hard, even for the best of men, to keep themselves from the first error. The holiest of Christians and those who understand the best or best the gospel of Christ find in themselves a constant inclination to look to the power of the creature instead of looking to the power of God and the power of God alone. Here's why repentance is counterintuitive when it comes to your sin. Repentance, the act of repentance, is the white flag of surrender. The act of repentance says, if God doesn't protect me from my guilt and my sin, then I have no defense at all. If God doesn't protect me, then I have no defense at all. And that there tells you why it's so counterintuitive. Because for you and I to say, I have no defense, that is very unnatural. 
say, just like the people said in verse 16, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. We believe we have all kinds of defenses. There are multiple strategies that we use to try to protect ourselves from guilt, shame, and sin. I'll name a few. One is defensiveness. Right? That's the horse we flee upon. When, when we're confronted in our sin, we are quick to explain it away. Right? Or to justify. Or another one. Blame shifting. When we're confronted with our sin, we're quick to blame someone else or to blame a circumstance. Or self-pity. That's a horse we flee out. When we're confronted with our sin, we just beat ourselves up. And we make sure we see everyone else beating ourselves up. And we think that we've escaped. We think that we've escaped our sin or our shame and our guilt. We've we provided an adequate defense. But look what verse 16 says. We'll flip on horses. Right? That's the natural inclination of the human heart. Look at the result. Therefore, your pursuers shall be there is no defense against your guilt and your sin and your shame apart from God. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the only one who can give you rest. The only one who can quiet your soul. He is your only defense. Your only defense against sin. Against guilt. Against shame. And so the act of repentance is not fleeing on horses. The act of repentance is turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, apart from you, I have no defense. One pastor shares the story of a phone call he received as Christmas was approaching from this man who needed counseling. So this man showed up in the pastor's office and he began to share his story of why he needed counseling. About a decade earlier, he had killed his wife in a moment of rage and anger. He was convicted of manslaughter and spent several years in prison. They had a daughter at the time, but the daughter immediately went into custody with the in-laws. And now Christmas was approaching. So this man showed up in his pastor's office and was weeping. He said, if I saw my daughter in the street, I wouldn't even recognize her. Christmas was approaching and his heart was aching. And his pastor, what he remembered of his counseling session was what this man said when he walked in to his door. This is what he said. He raised his arms dramatically as he walked in before they started talking. He said, now, preacher, let's just leave Jesus out of this, okay? 
the man walked away from that session sad, and this pastor thought to himself, that's the whole problem. You left Jesus out. And you and I did the same thing. We can have a lot of crazy religious activity. We can show up at church. We can show up at the community group or Bible study. We have all the outward activity of religion. And we can leave Jesus out. When we leave Jesus out, we wonder why we're still wracked with guilt and with shame over our sin. Jesus is the only defense you have to your guilt, to your past, to your present, to your sin. Jesus is your only defense. What brings rest to a weary soul? We explore the, the need for repentance, the act of repentance. Now let's explore the power for repentance. If repentance is so counterintuitive, if it is so unnatural to us, then what draws us to repentance? If it's something we don't do naturally, then there's got to be something that is drawing us to it. What is that? Verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Wait is the operative word in this verse. And the Hebrew grammar will tell us that our waiting and the Lord's waiting are not quite the same thing. We wait on the Lord, meaning we open ourselves up to him in humility. We trust his timing. We trust his wisdom to work things out. That's what it means for us to wait on the Lord. But the Lord waiting on us communicates his patience. He exercises continual patience with us. He puts up with us moment by moment. He waits on us. He doesn't forsake us. Why doesn't he forsake us? Verse 18, the Lord is the God of justice. And he said, wait a minute, wait. Justice is not the first word that I think about that would motivate God to wait on me. I hear justice, and I hear the reason why he wouldn't wait, why he wouldn't be patient. So how in the world is the truth that God's a God of justice supposed to explain why he waits on me and why he's patient with me and why he puts up with me moment by moment? First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of the work of Christ, in paying the debt for your sin, 
in enduring judgment in your place because of the work of Christ, it would be unjust of God to turn his back on you. It would be unjust of God not to forgive you when you confess. Because he'd have to turn his back on the work of his own son. Because of the work of Christ, God's face is turned towards you. Look at verse 19. It's beautiful. For people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. That does not paint the imagery of a God who is turned away from you, who is remote, who is distant. That when he hears your cry, he needs to hear it over and over to be convinced that you're serious enough about it before he turns to you. No, this is the picture of a God who is looking at you. As you're running away, and when you cry out in repentance, he immediately responds. Now, I've, I've, I've talked about this fairly often. I don't think it can be overstated. It is so incredibly important to understand the distinction between reconciliation and repentance. Reconciliation is God turning his face towards you because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's a one-time act. That when you trust Jesus Christ, Jesus takes your sin, reconciles you to the Father, God's face is turned towards you. That happens once, he never turns away from you. That's reconciliation. Repentance is when you turn your face back to God. That's not a one-time act. That's a daily, moment-by-moment act. It happens over and over. The beauty of that is that when you repent and you turn to God, you see a face that has never turned away from you. You see a God who's waiting patiently, moment by moment, putting up with you in your sin because he loves you. And he's turned towards you because of the work of Christ. Back to the question, what draws you to repentance? Verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, that means the Lord, yet the Lord will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Verse 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left, When you see God's face, meaning when his presence breaks through in your life, and when you hear God's voice through his word, he reveals your idols and what they really are. Verse 22, then you will defile your heart idols and you will say to them, be God. When God's presence breaks through, when you see his face, when you hear his voice through his word, 
you realize that your idols have no power to forgive you. They have no power to extend grace or mercy to you. Your idols only have the power to shame you or humiliate you. God pours out His grace and mercy. God gives your heart the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that it needs. And, and when you see that, you realize those idols, those false gods, those things you turn to, they don't have that power. They can't forgive you. They can't be gracious to you. They can only demand more. And when you fail, they leave you in your poor blood. They have no power. They only can humiliate you. Bill Kane, an American playwright and priest, told the story of his father, who was dying of cancer. And it got to the point where his father was physically becoming completely unable because of the cancer. But his mind was still lively. And so there was this moment where the great reversal happened where Bill basically took over caring for his father on his deathbed with cancer. And so what he would do is every night he would read to his father until he fell asleep, exactly what his father had done to him as a child. And so he would read some novel to his father, and the idea was he would read to his father, his father would fall asleep, but as he would read to his father, his father would just stare at his son, stare at Bill with a smile. And, and, and Bill, having you know, given care all day long, would say to his dad, Dad, here's the deal. I read to you, you fall asleep and close your eyes. And dad would say, oh, he'd kind of to apologize. Yep, yep, you're right, you're right. He closed his eyes. A couple seconds later, I would pop him. Staring at his son. And Bill would say, Dad, come on. So he closed that eye. A couple seconds later, I would pop him again. Staring at his son, just smiling. Bill said that went on every night until his dad finally passed. And he looked back on that and he said, My summary of that whole experience was that of a father who couldn't take his eyes off his kid. What's true of Jesus is true of you. When God the Father said to his son Jesus after his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That was a father who couldn't take his eyes off his son. You know, the reality is there was one moment where God took his eyes off his son Jesus. Is that the cross? When he turned his face away. But of course, Jesus puts him to death, rose from the dead, and returned to be at the right hand of his Father. He got the Father's eyes on his Son. And what's true of Jesus is true of you. If you're in Christ, God the Father's eyes are on you. He has turned his face towards you. 
He said, what brings rest to a weary soul? That's it. That's it. Whatever it is in your life that's bringing the weariness, the fatigue, the stress, holidays. This is a difficult time for many because of family dysfunction. Whatever it is that's bringing that stress and bringing that weariness, the answer is not frantic activity. The answer is to see the Father's face turn towards you. And to turn from whatever frantic activity, restless anxiety you've been pursuing, to turn and see the Father's face and to absolutely rest in His love for you. That's what produces rest for a weary soul. Let's pray. Father, there are many in this room that are overwhelmed with stress right now. It's that time of season. A season that's supposed to be of giving thanks here next week and then a season of utter joy at Christmas and yet, because of brokenness, these next weeks, months, can be so stressful. And Father, we confess that we flee our horses. That we run and flee and, and try to find something to bring rest to our souls. And, and we realize in fleeing and running that anything but you that it brings nothing but greater unrest and shame and disgrace. Father, turn our eyes to you where we see tender love where we receive tender love because of the work of your Son, Jesus, to take away our sin. Father, give us rest. Even as we respond now to singing, where we sing from a place of deep rest. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.